just live once again a privilege just being able to, to be here and gather as a family and really just share, uh, I think, what the Lord is busy with in, in so many lives and, and really just loving Him and, and bringing Him honor. Um, and this morning, I want to look at a piece of scripture in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 22 to 30. And for those of you who have your Bibles with you, you can open up your Bibles for those who bring them and for, for those who work on their phones, John 3, verse 22 to 30. And I'll read it for us. And it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Let's go to the, to the next one. For, jo yeah, is that, yes. For John had not yet been put in prison and our discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore this joy of mine is now complete. It's that he must increase, but I must decrease. To be honest, I've read that scripture quite a few times and I love the book of John and, and kept on reading over it and almost just in that moment, it felt like it was something that John just said. Now that you must increase and I must decrease. And then one morning, just as I was spending time with the Lord, it just felt like that scripture was the only scripture on the whole page that I could read. And I found myself just pondering on what John said in that moment. And if you look at the previous chapters in the book of John, it almost seems as if though before that, John was the it guy, you know? That wherever he went, people gathered and followed him. Wherever he went, he gathered people while he was preaching and people got saved. He was sort of the man, the myth and the legend. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and John's disciples come to him. The stage is set. And they say, Rabbi, do you see? He's baptizing. People are going to him. And then John's response is good. He must increase. And I must decrease. And I really believe that the words of John in that very, very moment revealed something to us of the posture that he carried in his heart. And it was a posture of humility. And we live in a time where humility has sort of been given a back seat in the world, where 
it's been given a back seat even in some churches where self-help and self-promotion is celebrated and it's seen as being strong self-help and self-promotion is seen as taking opportunity it is seen as seizing the day we live in a world where the proud send themselves where the rich finance themselves where the famous advertise themselves where the gifted promote themselves and where the powerful recommend themselves and you look at that and you compare it to john's response and you think we need jesus so much we need his heart and after reading that scripture and, and just mulling over it for a few times I, I could feel my heart wanting to respond to this and if you look at john's response in verse 30 where he said that he must increase he used the word must such a powerful word and he used it both ways he said that he must increase and i must decrease and if we are to run as god's people after his heart this is our response that he must increase and we must decrease it's a posture of humility And from this passage, I believe there are some keys that, that we can actually take away from John's posture of humility. And I gave each of these keys a name for, for those who are taking notes, for the, for the, for the note takers that I call them plichis. Um, you are more than welcome to, to give each of these keys a title. And the first one of the posture of John's humility is that security blesses while insecurity threatens. And in John 3 verse 28, John speaks and he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And earlier in the book of John, in John 1, it says that John came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And I really believe that in that moment, John, he was secure. He was secure in his mission. He was secure in who he was. He knew that his mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. Not to be the way. Not to be the light. And imagine, imagine if it played out in that moment that John was insecure imagine how that would have looked his disciples john's disciples coming to him and saying rabbi do you see what's busy happening he's baptizing and imagine john then saying well this is preposterous we need to put an end to this but no he said it's about him he needs to increase and i thought of an example where I've seen a few leadership questionnaires and, and they sort of ask you, now you're like, list your strengths and list your weaknesses. And, and I, <laughs> I thought about it and I said, yes, imagine you go and you, you have your, 
listing your strengths and now your weaknesses and you say, they ask you, what are your strengths? And you say, humility is one of my strengths. And then they ask, list your weaknesses. Well, I often sometimes struggle with pride. So it cancels one another out basically. And that is what insecurity does. It's in that moment, it just threatens. And a posture like John had is so seldomly celebrated in churches today. It's so seldomly celebrated in the world today. And if you think of it, and I relate to this, it's not easy being the warm-up act. You know, when you think of a concert, people come and they buy tickets to see the main event, not the warm-up act. We as God's people need to properly root and secure our hearts in Him and our identities in Him. And just a story on that. So last year, November, I signed up or entered to do the Ironman in Mosul Bay. Mosul Bay, sorry for my Afrikaans coming through there. It's, it's early. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> in Mossel Bay, I'm in an English church in Mossel Bay, and to be honest, the first, my first, my first thought with, with signing up for that was, okay, this is something I want to conquer, I want to, I want to grab this thing, you know, you get the very nice finisher t-shirt that you can wear and you get the medal, for those who like medals, and so I said, okay, this thing. I'm, I'm going to crack it because I've, I've always been quite active and it's not to promote myself or any of the athletic coach. This is not me wanting a contract. It's just, I said, this thing I want to do. But there was a small, and I'm being honest, there was a small part in me that wanted some of the people that I know to see that I did an Ironman. That the people on my Strava could see, just this guy did an Ironman. There was some part of me that was actually quite insecure because I think if you look at me, I'm not the typical triathlete build, okay? I'm short and stocky. Those guys are what I call my prayer for my next life. They are tall, dark, and handsome. And so that is why I think there was an insecurity in me. I was like, all right, if I do this, I can prove, man, that, you know, I'm an Iron Man. And so... Race day came, and for those who don't know, an Ironman is, is built up of, out of three disciplines, and it's a 1.9-kilometer swim. This is a half Ironman, not the full. A 1.9-kilometer swim, a 90-kilometer cycle, and then after the cycle, a 21-kilometer run. This is the half. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to be banking on the past two years' training, or the training I did two years ago. Sorry, let me correct that. I'm going to be banking on that. <laughs> I should be all right. And you can ask my wife as my witness. I did train. I, I, not as well as I should have. They had like a program, like a seven-day program. And I thought, nah, I'll maybe make it a two-day program. Um, and I, mean, I, I thought to myself, yes, I'm in full-time ministry. <laughs> so no, I'm actually. <laughs> and I really didn't train as hard as I should have. Anyway, get to race day. And then before you enter the Ironman, you sort of have to put out different times for yourself and say, okay, I want to be finished by this time with the swim, be finished by this time with the bike so that I've got this much time left for the run. And after getting out of the water with a swim, 
I actually finished, I think, more than 10 minutes quicker than I wanted to. And 10 minutes is a lot. It's a massive difference. And so then, run to my bike, jump on my bike, and I go, Ahoy. And I was really, I was muttering. Okay, I, I actually recently saw a video of Lance Armstrong who, who put like a little motor in his, in his bicycle in the early days, and that was actually what it was called for as well. I actually felt like that. I was really going. And how it worked is you have a 45-kilometer cycle in one direction, and then you literally come back the exact same way you came. And so we're going, and just my pace was great, and I thought, yes, all right, I can actually do this. I thought to myself, the uh, 502nd medal, here I come for 502nd place. And we make the turn after 45 kilometers. And then it happened. We hit the wind of doom. I later dubbed it the wind of doom. We hit probably Cape Town's worst headwind in the history of headwinds. It basically felt like that, if, if I can be honest. You know, it was like a woe is me moment. <laughs> and my pace dropped drastically. I was just, I, I, I could actually could have just climbed off and walked, to be honest. And after some tears, after almost giving up a few times, really, after a lot of prayer as well, I was really just conversing with the Lord. I was like, just like, Lord, what am I doing with my life? Like, why do, I, why do I pay money to do this? Anyway, and actually afterwards, it was, it, it's, quite, it's quite tiring. Sorry, my story. <laughs> it's quite tiring because I was constantly doing maths in my head. And I told my brother-in-law afterwards, he did it with me. I said, I, I don't think I've ever done that much maths. Because you're constantly checking your watch and working out, okay, my pace is this, I need to finish by this time. So it, it's, it wasn't a nice time on the bike. I get to transition part where you put your bike down and then you go on to for the run for the 21 kilometer and take my bottle of water that I just bought that previous day and I chuck it away and I, and I said okay I'm ready for this and run and there before you enter the transition point there's like a gate and there was a lady standing there and what she had in her hand I called the tablet of doom and I get to her and how it works is you say your number and she then checks, okay, are you on time? Have you actually made the cutoff to continue the race? And I thought to myself, you know, this is like a lot of people I know with their math point, like their math marks. It's either going to be just in or just out. And I get to her and I say, this is my number, 572. And she looks up, small lady. And I thought, okay. She said, sorry, sir. Missed the cutoff by 12 minutes. And I'm honest, I had a type of grown man cry on that day. And I thought, no, I literally just swam 1.9 kilometers and cycled 90 kilometers to here. I missed by 12 minutes. And afterwards, just reflecting on this race. Because we had to drive all the way back from Mossel Bay to Stellenbosch. So I had four and a half hours to sit and mope. <laughs> and I was just reflecting and, and actually conversing with the Lord. And, and I said, yeah, Lord, you, you really does have 
a sense of humor. And that day, he used 12 minutes to humble me. He used 12 minutes to decrease my insecurity. And I just love what Charles Spurgeon says, where he says that humility is the proper estimate of oneself. And if we are secure in him as his people, and know that we are what we are because of him, that we have what we have because of him, and that we can do what we do because of him, our position would always be the warm-up act and not the main event. And then the second one, the second key, is whose message and whose mission. And in John 3 verse 29, John speaks and he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And for the last while, I've found myself going over that question so many times, asking myself constantly, whose message am I preaching? And whose mission am I busy fulfilling? Is it my own? Or is it the one that the Lord has given? Is it His? And you know, today we find so many international ministries. You know, you go onto a live stream and you almost know about who this ministry is by just looking at the bottom of the screen. It says, this name, International Ministries, and this name, International Ministries, or this name, PTY, Limited, everything. And you almost think, where's the word church? Where's the word Jesus in this name? And to illustrate that, we used to joke about a certain boys' school in Bloemfontein. And yeah, many of you will know the school. It's quite an average school. Um, they they do all right in church. They're actually more of an academic school. Uh, I'm only joking. They're just like they're sport crazy. And I've got a few friends in this school, so that's why I can speak freely about this because they also speak freely about this. And it's a school called Gray College. And after this, I might get a few messages. Anyway, and we used to joke and we used to say, how do you know that someone is in or was in Gray College? Exactly. Is that as you come and you come to introduce yourselves, you say, hey, I'm Ornay. They say, hello, Aquas and Gray. And it's almost like this that we see today is that you see the name before you see the name of Jesus in the churches. It's almost as if they are saying, hey, this bride belongs to me. And actually yesterday I saw quite a funny video about this where it was this wedding and the bride and the groom is standing there and it's the part of the ceremony where, you know, the pastor asks, is there anyone that objects? And you just see the groomsman next to the groom. The one guy picks up his shirt and sticking out as a gun and he's showing all the people, look at what I have. 
and the other groomsman actually pulls out a gun and is busy, busy putting, on, putting on a suppressor like Hitman vibes just to show the people that this bride belongs to this groom. And I think this scripture that John said that this bride belongs to this groom. It doesn't belong to us. It's his. It's his message. It's his mission. And John actually didn't stop there. He went on and he said something so profound. He said, my joy is complete. He didn't just say, oh, it gives me joy. He said it's complete. And I remember at our wedding when Rebecca came walking down the aisle, looking at the photos afterwards, I could see some of the groomsmen also snorting trana and just like tissue in his eyes. And I was also part of a few other weddings where I was a groomsman and also grown man crying while the bride was walking in. And in that moment, I can honestly say that as you look at her coming in, coming to be joined to the groom, there's really a complete joy in you, not for yourself, but for the two becoming one, for the bride that is to belong to the groom. And as what John is saying, he says, my joy is complete that people see who the bride belongs to. It's almost as if in that moment he's saying, yes, this is what I've been living for. It's for people to see that the bride belongs to the groom. It's for people to see who the bridegroom is. His message was Jesus. His mission was Jesus, not his own. And what completed his joy, as he said there in the verse, was being called a friend of the groom and not the groom himself. And thirdly, the third key is it's not about being the most, but it's about being the least. And in John 3 verse 30, John said, for me, one of the most challenging things in the New Testament, we said that he must increase and I must decrease. And John's greatest moment his greatest joy in that moment wasn't to look great and said, oh, yeah, look at how profound this was that I said. It wasn't for the sake of a good story, but it was to exalt Jesus. It was for the people who gathered there to see that Jesus is the one, the only one worthy. And actually the greatest example of this all is Jesus himself. The one who John was actually busy exalting, who John was saying, he's above all. He's the light. He's the groom. This Jesus goes and does this later on in John, in chapter 13. And he washes the feet of his disciples. The one who was the Christ, who is the Christ, the groom bent down and washed the feet of his disciples. And John said, John said, the one who sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. He became the least in that moment. And I actually love what, 
or how a guy called Richard Foster, he captured this moment in these words so well. And he said that no one wanted to be considered the least. And then Jesus took a towel and a basin and he redefined greatness. Oh man, and that we would take the words of Jesus in Matthew 23 and embed it so deep in our hearts as his people. We said that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Just as I end, as I, as I close, I really believe what mattered to John in that moment on that day wasn't that someone else was busy baptizing. It wasn't that someone else was busy gathering followers. But what mattered to him was who it was that was gathering followers. Who it was that was seen on that day. What mattered most to him was that Jesus would be glorified and exalted. And we really live in a time where the lights, the cameras, and all the actions are exalted. But we have been set apart and called to exalt the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's not that when John said on that day that he must increase, it's not that he said, that Jesus needs to become greater. He's already great. He's the son of God. But what he meant was that the greatness of Jesus would increase in the hearts of his people. Is that they would turn and say, Lord, whose ministry? It's yours. Whose mission? It's yours. Whose message? It's yours. May we be a people who secure our hearts and our identities in him. May we be a people who preaches his message, who fulfills his mission. And may we be a people who gladly takes the lowest position in front of him and in front of one another so that he will be glorified, so that he will be made known, so that the unsaved would know him, so that we can honor him as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I said at the beginning that we need Jesus. <laughs> I, I need Jesus. The church needs Jesus. And this can only be done if he is allowed to come and increase if our hearts are open and saying, Lord, my life is yours. All I do is yours. And just as I close, is that he doesn't want our messages, our preachers. He wants us to become like him. He wants us to keep on washing feet, to stay on our knees. He's gracious when we respond to him. As the Bible says that he's, he gives grace to the humble. Yeah.